0: Hello my dreamers, I know you're kind of hearing a lot from me this week and I just wanted you to know that I just had these projects sort of floating around over the two weeks that I had off between Thanksgiving and this past weekend. There are actually not enough hours in the day for everything that I would like to do. What I have for you this time is another special bonus collaboration I once again had the tremendous pleasure of working with the host of Mysterious Circumstances, as well as the Rev Six podcast, Justin Rimmel. Back in September, I visited Las Vegas, and I went to Fremont Street in downtown. I wanted to get some pictures of Binion's Horseshoe, but I also made my way over to the El Cortez. Outside the building, there was a plaque on the sidewalk dedicated to a man who had once been part owner of the place, Benjamin Siegel. I asked in the group if anyone would be interested in an episode of Bugsy, and the reaction was mixed, so if you aren't a fan of Mafia stories, then go ahead and pass. This is just a bonus, and the usual stuff that you all enjoy will certainly continue to show up in your feeds. But if you do want to take a chance on this episode, I'd really appreciate it. Anyway... For those of you who know Justin, know that he has a long-standing interest in Mafia lore, so I asked him if he wanted to do this episode along with me, and fortunately, he agreed. Now, a few things about this recording. This is the first of two parts, and it's not going to be your typical California Dreaming-style narration. I'm pretty sure I do the majority of the talking in this. It feels like I did. But because of the way we recorded it, you're going to hear me in my natural state. I stumble over words. I lose my train of thought. And because we recorded over two days for probably a total of four or five hours, I'm pretty sure at times I sound like a hot mess. And Justin and I talk this thing through from start to finish. And there's another thing that you should know. I was reading from my notes like I usually do. Justin interjected with his information straight from his noggin because he's just knowledgeable like that. He is the one also that did all of the technical work and all of the editing to make it sound as good as possible for you guys. So thank you for doing all of that, Justin. Without further ado, please enjoy another installment of California Circumstances, The Life and Death of Benjamin
1: Bugsy Siegel. Organized crime families were pulling in as much money
0: as the 10 largest industrial corporations in the United States put together.
2: Ben was not of a disposition to want to go to school and try to get an education and
0: get an ordinary job, whatever it is he wanted to achieve uh, that
2: route was much too slow for him. And I think that's what pushed him into an early life of crime. The dashing trigger happy Benjamin Siegel, better known as Bugsy, was as charming as he was murderous. Benny was a powerhouse, and he got there by using his guns and his fists and, and, and his charm.
0: Benny just did what he wanted to do. Every woman that met him just went crazy about him, but they were all like afraid of him.
2: He's smiling at you one minute, and, and the next minute you better run. Bugsy used his charm and millions of dollars from the Mafia on the gamble of a lifetime. He gained control of the Las Vegas resort and casino called the Flamingo. Only Bugsy was way out of his league. His forte was murder, not business. When he built the Flamingo, that became the beginning of the fabulous Las Vegas Strip, which became the entertainment capital of America.
1: Benny he was a one-man
2: army. Then he was fearless. He was a little bit crazy. That's why the name, Bug. People in the Lower East Side said he was crazier than a bed bug. So Bug became Bugsy. You know, that guy, he's Bugsy and so on. But as he made his way up, no one would use that name to his face.
0: I want to say that I'm really excited to be talking to one of the hardest working people in podcasting. It's Justin and I'm, we've been talking about the subject of today's story for quite some time. And I kind of touched on the topic back in April when I did my episode on the Horseshoe Casino and um, his, ties, his ties to the mob. The mafia isn't a thing that I know a lot about. And I've been interested in the history of Las Vegas ever since then. And um, you can't talk about Las Vegas history without talking about the mafia. And once I was able to wrangle Justin into doing this episode with me, (laughs) (laughs) there's definitely some mysterious circumstances surrounding the death of this gangster that we're going to talk about today. And it's my understanding that Justin has a longstanding interest in this subject. So I'm so lucky that he's agreed to join me for this episode. So, Justin...
2: I'm just uh, happy that you asked me to do it because.
0: Oh, stop! <laughs>
2: oh, when you, uh, when you, when you were like, "Hey, you, I'm going to do Bugsy Siegel. Do you want to do it?" And it's like you'd even have to ask me that question. Like I need to do this. And one of my very first episodes was a mobster who died mysteriously, and supposedly one of the reasons he was killed was because of Bugsy Siegel. So, I've always had like a really. Long time fascination with the subject, and I told Roseanne. I said, the only the only notes I'm going to work with here are the notes directly related to his death, like the gunshots and where they hit, and what happened, and all that stuff. But other than that, this is one of the things I've I've always gotten into. And me and you had joked. I I got caught when I was a little bit younger. <laughs> I was trying to write letters to John Gotti while he was in prison and so, you know my mom so my cool. mom found him. yeah as they were you know i had them stamped and everything and my Aww. mom's like why are you trying to write letters to a killer and it's like it's john gotti mom <laughs> like, how can i can i not want to write letters to this guy so i i don't know i've always been fascinated with this subject and, and this topic so when you ask me i just there's no way i was going to say no it's like Aww. yes let's thank do it
0: you. thank oh. you so much and this I'm going completely off of so many notes that I wrote because I don't know a whole lot about this. And like this and much of what this podcast has been about for me has been a learning experience. And I'm so grateful to have you here with me to do this.
2: Oh, no. It's it's a fun topic, isn't it, when you start getting into it? It is.
0: It is. And but... many of you have have seen that I went to visit Bugsy Siegel's group I didn't tell you yet but you're gonna know (laughs) by the time this episode comes out that I did he's buried about 25 miles away from where I live and I went there and I stood next to his dead body and it was a very surreal moment for me because Justin and I have been talking about this for months literally And we're here to bring it to you. So before I get started, I have to warn you that this episode has lots of Italian names. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm going to do the best that I can to hit those pronunciations as accurately as I possibly can. So other than that, I'm ready to go.
2: All right. I'm ready to go, too.
0: Okay. Because Justin knows everything about this. (laughs) I'm going to tell you what I know, and I want him to hopefully expand on it. So, Bugsy Siegel was born, Benjamin Siegel, on February 28, 1906, in Brooklyn, New York. He's been known by several names in his life. Benjamin, of course. Ben, Benny, Bugsy. Bugsy was a nickname that he acquired as a teenager by those who knew him to have quite a violent streak. But he was impulsive. He was mercurial in his personality, and they equated him with being kind of crazy as a bedbug. So they started calling him Bugsy. He didn't like the nickname, and he never would. <laughs> he even purportedly threatened anyone who would call him that. He was known to have said, My friends call me Ben, strangers call me Mr. Siegel, and anyone who would call him that, Bugsy, he, it would make him really upset.
2: Nobody would. There's one story that I heard of. Uh, he went in for a haircut at one point in time, and this was in his little bit later years. And the person just knew of him, didn't know him, and, and called him Bugsy. And uh, right there in the barber shop, he almost uh, he almost killed the guy. He was stopped by uh, you know the barber, the regular barber who cut his hair, and. He ended up, he's like, listen, he doesn't, he doesn't know, you know, so supposedly Bugsy walked over and kind of shook his hand and, you know, introduced himself and he told him, he's like, don't ever call me Bugsy again. <laughs> but he's like growing up, I mean, he grew up super poor. He changed his name. He grew up in the Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn there. And uh from a very early age, I mean, he knew that he could, he could work. Like his parents did, you know, and just han live hand to mouth for the rest of his life, but he also noticed at that point in time in New York in the very early twentieth century, there was only so many options, and he wanted the life that he, you know his parents didn't have and I mean he was even originally his last name was Siegelbaum, and he took the bomb off the end of it, and just shortened it up, and he just kind of kind of went on his own but I mean, the guy was strikingly handsome and very, very charismatic. But man, so many stories of of just just straight up violence, yeah. just just like you had stated. I
0: had no idea that his name was shortened from Siegelbaum. Yeah. <laughs> <In> all- <laughs> That's just an example of how deep Justin goes with this. Stuff. <laughs> okay. I, I do I, love it. I went pretty deep with this. I don't think I've uncovered anything that Justin doesn't know, but I might uncover a few things that you out there listening don't know. But yeah, his parents were Jewish immigrants and he was raised with four siblings in a section of Williamsburg, New York that was particularly wrapped with crime. And it was a place that was crawling with rodents and the place they lived was very small for their family and it wasn't long before the main goal of the children in his family that they were going to do the best that they could in school to get out of this but Siegel he was bugsy he was more drawn to being on the streets than being on the classroom he wasn't interested in school or furthering his education towards having a life and a regular job he didn't have the patience for it He wanted things to come to him quickly and easily, and it's been surmised that in his mindset, that's what nudged him into this life of crime early on. The area where he was raised, this was a place where Irish, Italian, and Jewish gangs ran the streets, so he began his own criminal career pretty early, and by the time he was getting into his teen years, he was already added. By the age of 10, he was becoming part of the criminal activity on the streets, and that way, he made quick money, Then he was shaking down or extorting money from push cart vendors on the streets of New York. So he quickly got into that kind of a racket.
2: He did, too. He dropped out of the sixth grade because he wanted to start making money. And just to touch on the, the push carts there, I mean, he was about, I think, anywhere between 12 and 14 when he started when he started doing that. And he would go up to the push carts and he would offer them fire insurance. Of course, these push cart guys are are looking at, you know, a 12-year-old kid like, what are you talking about, man? Like, no. So what he would do is he'd go back later that night and uh, he would torch those push carts with kerosene. So began his life of crime. Those pushcart operators would usually he would uh, usually charge them a dollar per week per pushcart, and uh, that's how he started started making his money.
0: Fire insurance. <laughs>
2: fire. Yep, yeah, that's the fire insurance, and he started doing craps too. They started running crap games in the in the alleys and stuff like that. And a lot of these guys, when they were younger, especially uh, uh, Bugsy and and a couple of his. Uh, closer friends a guy named Mo Sedway and then eventually uh, Meyer Lansky who we haven't gotten to yet but they realized that there was more money to be made by controlling these games and and being the ones in control of it than there was actually playing the games so they started doing that as well
0: Yeah, before long, these young guys they started doing what they saw the older gangsters were doing, and they were organizing gambling rings right there on the streets. And they would set up their games under street lamps or in an alley, someplace kind of inconspicuous. And they quickly figured out that the money was in running these games, as opposed to being a player. So they sort of considered themselves like these up-and-coming entrepreneurs. And for a young Bugsy Siegel, this came very easily to him. He had kind of like this personality that was take charge. By the time he reached his early teens, many considered him to be pretty tough, but somewhat of a small-time thug at this point. That's when he crossed paths with Meyer Lansky, a fellow Jewish kid. He was about four years older than Bugsy. When he encountered him on that day um, on the Lower East Side when they met, According to Lansky, they met on a street corner, and you might know more about this than I've researched, but I'll tell you what I found. Both of them as teenagers, um, Lansky was coming home from school one day when he saw a game of craps escalate into a street fight. And they be hearing police whistles, and uh, as the fuzz got closer, Lansky saw that Bugsy had a gun, and he forced mm-hmm. them to drop the gun, and Siegel put up a fight. He didn't want to leave it behind, and they scuffled over it, and Lansky forced him to leave so they can get away from the police. And Siegel was mad that he lost his gun. He would always take credit for getting him out of that jam with police, as ungrateful as Siegel was in the moment that a lifelong friendship was born.
2: That's exactly right. Even Meyer Lansky in later years always said, I mean, even up until, you know, the early 70s when he was in uh, Israel, and not in the U.S. anymore. I saw in one interview, he's he's just, Bugsy Siegel was fixated on that gun. He's like, it was like there was nobody else around. He didn't hear anything. He didn't know what, he didn't care. All he cared about was trying to grab that gun because the, the gun had gotten dislodged from his hand at some point in time when it was kind of laying there on the ground, and he said Bugsy was, was so mad that he left that gun behind, but But, yeah, Meyer pretty much changed the course of his life, that's for sure. It was more
0: important for him to get away from the police than to pick up that gun. Meyer Lansky, he was born on July 4th, 1902, in the Russian Empire to a Jewish-Polish family who had suffered through some anti-Semitic oppression and mistreatment. The family had immigrated to Manhattan's Lower Side by 1911, he was so much of a troublemaker he was as much of a troublemaker as Siegel was but when buggy what set benjamin apart for from everyone else was his penchant for violence and this guy was a person that had no fear and some would say that he was borderline crazy and i told you that's kind of how he got his nickname but um It wasn't long after the two of them hooked up that they became partners in crime and they decided to form their own gang and it was called the Bugs and Meyer Mob. They were still teenagers at the time and they formed their gang just after Prohibition was enacted. And the Bugs and Meyer Mob was the predecessor to Murder Incorporated. Um, They were organized crime group which formed in around 1931, all the way up until the 1950s. And they were elite in their enforcement of the Italian-American mafia and the Jewish mob. And they connected organized crime conglomerates comprised mostly of gangsters from various neighborhoods in Brooklyn, New York. But it's believed that Murder Incorporated was responsible for anywhere between 1,000 and 1,200 contract killings for the mafia.
2: It's very, very true. And in even before how they ended up making so much money with the Bugs Meyer gang or the Bugs Meyer mob, it was is pretty cool because once prohibition started, they started realizing hey, there's a bunch of money to be made here, so they started doing like several jobs. They were hijacking uh, a lot of alcohol runs. They were making uh, beer runs. They were riding shotgun as protection for a lot of runs, but what they did was because they started making these these runs they had to they realized that hey you know to in order to rent vehicles to do this this is costing more money so they started their own kind of like a car rental business and it was great because there was no overhead because all the cars that they used were stolen anyway and that was that was one of Meyer Lansky's ideas which was really ingenious because Meyer Lansky is known as one of the the brains because he was so very 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 smart uh when it came to finances and money and all that stuff and when they started doing that's when they really started making that money and then when Murder Incorporated came around like you had said uh you know, a subject to one of my older episodes, a guy named Abe Ellis. He was in charge of, you know, the Brownsville boys. And Murder Incorporated was cool. Well, I can't say cool, but it was really interesting because before Murder Incorporated, the, the Italians and the Jewish basically took care of their own. Uh, if a jewish mobster got out of line then the jewish mobsters were the ones that killed him and then same thing with the with the italians but when murder incorporated came about they pretty much became a group of guys that were hitmen for hire 24 hours a day and they actually had a little spot in the back of this old candy shop that was open for 24 hours a day. And they would literally just sit back there and wait for the phone to ring. And they had so many guys that were so prolific and efficient killers that depending on what the hit was, they would choose the people who would be best suited for that job. And a lot of people don't realize too is that Murder Incorporated was a national syndicate. They would travel all over the U.S. and do hits. It wasn't just local. When Siegel was involved in Murder, Inc., he is supposed to be responsible for right around 30 murders himself. And Murder Incorporated, it's funny because a lot of people will sit there and say well, you know, Murder Incorporated didn't even exist. It was like a thing that was made up by the press. And it's like, no, it really did exist. Like, you know, when Abe Rellis got arrested for for a murder and he had a young family and he was getting ready to testify against all these mobsters, he laid it all out. He was giving information on murders that he had done in – you know, Detroit and Chicago and on the West Coast and pretty much everywhere. So it was like a national syndicate at one point in time. And like you had said, they, they're they responsible for a thousand plus murders over the course of their existence.
0: And Lansky and his associates had kind of put together a protective group of individuals in order to protect themselves. The Jewish gang and the Italian gangs and Irish gangs he originally started that with his younger brother, Jake, along with a couple of other guys. They were Meyer, Wassel, Samuel Levine, Irving Sandler, Joseph Statcher, and that's just to name a few. And the way the story is told as to how Meyer and Siegel met vary depending on who's telling the story. But Like I said, it was an altercation over a gun. But some accounts have said that it was an altercation between Siegel and Lucky Luciano over a sex worker. I don't know if this version you've heard before or not. It was just something I kind of read online. No,
2: I've never heard it. I've never really came across that, but it's an, it's interesting because I could see it be I could see it happening because I had always heard that Luciano and uh, Lansky got involved because the Jewish. The Jewish gangs and the and the Italian game gangs never mixed, ever. And and Luciano basically went to Meyer Lansky, who was, you know, pretty involved. And he was a higher up in one of the smaller gangs and, and tried to shake him down. And Meyer Lansky, in a different form of words, just told him to go screw off. And he said, right. just because I'm Jewish doesn't mean that you're going to sit here and shake me down. That's not going to happen.
0: Right. You know what? Lansky was the brain's. And Bugsy was his brawn. And even though they were younger, you know, they still had a stronghold. And they mm-hmm. had a reputation already.
2: They were very established. At, even even by the time Luciano came around, uh, Bugsy had a reputation already. And Meyer Lansky was, he had a reputation as well. He had obviously a different kind of reputation. But the two of them combined together. If Meyer Lansky was going to get involved in something, you can bet that Bugsy was going to be involved as well. There was no doubt about that.
0: Right. So, in the early 20s, the Bugsy and Meyer mob had sort of worked with Luciano, and he had a right hand man named Frank Costello. And together, they rounded up some gunmen that they knew to be experienced shooters. And they were working for their bootlegging operation. They acquired some stolen delivery trucks, like I think this is what you were saying, and they recruited some drivers. And when the United States had the government enacted prohibition in 1920, these gangsters immediately saw dollar signs, and they felt like they were handed the greatest illegal money-making racket ever. So after that, uh, one of the biggest gangsters... Who saw the tremendous potential in bootlegging was a man named Arnold the Brain Rothstein. Yes. And, yeah. <laughs> I knew you know this guy.
2: Oh, yeah. He's so interesting because this guy, uh, he, he, his nickname was literally the Brain. Right. Because he had so much stuff going on in a single day. He had his hands and everything you know his death is still unsolved and the only reason it's unsolved is because after he was shot dying on the street he still would not give the identity of the person who shot him he basically told the cops to go to go screw themselves he's like I'm I don't I don't talk the guy was so smart <laughs> he was
0: the son of a wealthy jewish businessman and through his father on the up and up and his brother would even grow to become a rabbi, but Arnold the Brahme, he developed an interest in gambling early on, much to his father's disdain. He would eventually establish his own sort of gambling hall, and he was invested in a horse, raking, horse racing racket in uh, Maryland. He reportedly fixed many of the races in order to light his own pockets. He had a large nec- network of informants working for him. Because his, of his father's um, connections, they had deep pockets as well, and he was willing to pay them top dollar for good information. And by the time he was 30 years old, already a bona fide millionaire, his biggest claim to fame up until the point of prohibition was fixing the 1919 World Series. And I had never heard of it before. <laughs> it was so fascinating. and I It never, really is. I never heard this before. This stuff is just impossible to do today. But he was accused of paying off several of the Chicago White Sox so that they would throw the game and lose to the Cincinnati Reds. He bet against the White Sox and won and made some really good money
2: they ended up becoming uh known as the Chicago Black Sox after that because <laughs> and that's what uh one of my future episodes is going to be Shoeless Joe Jackson and whether or not he was involved in that and he you know he claims that he wasn't particularly and you can kind of tell by the way some of the guys played you know it was definitely a fixed game and the best part is is they couldn't directly tie it back to Arnold Rothstein, even though everybody knew, if he's involved in something that has to do with gambling and he's betting a lot of money on it, Arnold Rothstein was the guy who didn't bet on anything unless he knew that what the outcome was going to be.
0: That's the beauty of all of this, though, is is that you just you don't know. These guys, they have their hands and everything, but they put so many layers of protection between themselves and the actual crime that it's not linked back to them. Mm-hmm. And that's the genius behind the mafia. Anyway, Siegel and Lansky were among the very first that Rothstein recruited when he was starting his whole, was it prohibition?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, into that. So Lansky was pretty knowledgeable when it to like, when it came to like cars and mechanical work and he was able to get the mob into some grand theft auto schemes. Before long, the gang was joined by a guy named Albert Longy Zwoman and his brother, and Mo and Louis...
2: His nickname was Lepke, but uh, it's usually pronounced Bukalter or okay. Buckalter.
0: Okay, that's yeah. better. Bootlatcher. Okay. <laughs> I told you I wasn't going to get these names right. Okay.
2: <laughs> well, he was he was actually the leader of one of the, the factions of Murder Incorporated. He the actual leader leader of Murder Incorporated was a guy named Albert Anastasia and Louis Lepke B- Buckalter answered directly to him. He was the one giving out the orders and he was an interesting character all in himself because he was he was a violent psychopath.
0: Every single one of these people are interesting. (laughs) Um, Collectively, they had their hand in the protection, hijacking the trucks, the illegal gambling, and murder. And they were the ones that took care of business for Frank Costello, not only in New York, but also in Louisiana. And they -hmm. would eventually completely dismantle or severely debilitate most Italian and American gangs in the way of political bribery and murder and the Bugs and Meyer gang grew their reputation for violence grew as well and they extorted money from Jewish and Irish and Italian shop owners money lenders and gamblers alike in order to front their business I think you might have mentioned this earlier they set up their shop inside of a car and truck rental business in Manhattan And that's where the gang would store all of their stolen stuff as well as have truckloads of illegal booze coming and going all hours of the night. So the man who stood out the most from all of this because of his proclivity for unabated violence was Bugsy Siegel. And the NYPD knew that the gang was quite vicious. But Siegel was known to be the most violent of all. And... It's been noted that he literally found a great deal of enjoyment and pleasure in killing people and committing the actual killings himself. And that he thrived off of it, being able to see the suffering and the pain and the process of dying, (laughs) reminds me a lot of, like, serial killers.
2: Uh, Yeah, (laughs) a lot of these guys were serial killers.
0: Nobody ever thinks about that when they talk about the mafia. They don't equate being a serial killer with a mobster. But Bugsy was a living, breathing contradiction at the same time. He was a paradox. He was a visionary. He was a dreamer, an idealistic person, a romantic, a lover, a charmer. He loved and lived and worked and killed with obsessiveness. And it was extraordinarily unique. But when that type of homicidal violence and irresistible charm and devastatingly good looks intermingle, what do you get? Yeah. A very, very dangerous human being <laughs> right he was that. Yeah. he was beautiful he was charismatic and people really liked him
2: and that's that's the thing that people don't realize i mean this guy was described as no less than just dapper i mean he had movie star good looks and they said you know when he walked into a room he was just charismatic all the women wanted him But, I mean, most of them were probably scared of him because even though, you know, he was a pretty quiet guy, you know, never really raised his voice or anything. But he just had those good looks and the charisma. But, I mean, the guy would put a gun to your head and pull the trigger without even thinking about it.
0: It reminds me of Ted Bundy.
2: (laughs) Exactly.
0: Yeah. So by the time he was 21, he found himself to kind of be sort of a businessman uh, criminal business but business nonetheless he'd become quite successful he started accumulating a criminal record as well he had charges of assault and drug dealing bootlegging hijacking robbery etc murder too of course but yeah. whatever charges were brought upon him none of them really ever seemed to stick and it would be thanks to the guys that he associated with, like Rothstein, etc., who had the right connections and just the right amounts of money to be able to get him out of his legal jams. And with this uninhibited ability to wildly break serious laws and make his money, he became quite wealthy, more so than the people that he knew back from his childhood in his neighborhood. And this was what he strived for to be better than what everyone else was doing in their everyday, day to day jobs. In the early thirties, Lansky and Siegel wanted to put together an outfit to be sort of like an enforcement branch of their gang. This was Murder Incorporated, we talked about it earlier. Mm -hmm. There were several members of the Bugs and Meyer gang who came to work as hitmen for Murder Incorporated, but later on, Lepke
1: <laughs>
0: Buck Alder <laughs> <Buckled> <laughs> and Albert Anastasia would become the lead hitmen. And while they kept busy earning money and stealing large shipments of liquor from rival outfits, they also solidified their stronghold in killing a number of rival gangsters as well. And Siegel, he was fiercely protective of his men. He was fearless. And he would never hesitate to cower in the face of danger whenever any of his men were confronted or threatened. If there was a perceived threat while there were others trying to figure out what a course of action to take, Siegel would already be the one having his gun out ready to shoot ready to shoot anyone and everyone that came at him. And he never flinched and he never backed down because he was unafraid. And he was intrepid. That's probably one of the most fascinating things about Bugsy.
2: He was a pretty fearless guy. I don't want to say he didn't care, but I mean, the dude just, he had been through so much and he had that reputation and he just, he was just fearless and nobody messed with him.
0: That's right. And at the same time, he had a double life. He was quite a looker. And he was quite the ladies' man. And despite his penchant for violence, beneath the surface, he had a charm and charisma that women found captivating, and it worked really well for him, disguising the violence that was always lurking just below. And he kept himself in really good shape. He was all of that. He was everything you could want in a playboy sort of a guy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and speaking on, a lot of people don't realize that Bugsy Siegel worked out almost every single day.
0: Every day.
2: Yeah, and he was not a big, like, built man, but everybody is like, no, like, you don't understand. Like, if you wanted to beat this guy up, you were going to have your work cut out for you because he was just in phenomenal shape all the time.
0: Every day. And he did settle down with one woman, and she was a childhood sweetheart of his, named the Krakauer. They would wed on January 29th, 1929, and they would have two children, Millicent and Barbara. But getting married didn't essentially end his social life with the ladies. It seemed to be part of what he wanted to maintain a certain image for himself one that would be respected by those of the outside looking in being the husband the family man and along with that he had purchased a Tudor style home for his family in Scarsdale New York a nice quiet area to raise his family it's been said that he and his wife were among the first Jewish people to move into Scarsdale.
2: It was predominantly, you know, Christian neighborhood, and they they were one of the first Jewish families to move into that neighborhood. And he still, you know, had his w- work in the city. You
0: know? <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: And but they, he was they, he was a very loving father, though. Like his daughters. They're they're like you don't know, understand like this this was dad like he would come home and you know have dinner and we would play and uh, by all accounts from them he was he's a very good father.
0: That's what my understanding is. That I really feel like they were sheltered from all of that. He kept up his family life, but he kept up his secret, violent, homicidal, completely separate life from his life his life at home. As far as anyone else was concerned, he was just kind of like a regular nine to five kind of a guy commuting from home to work and back again, doing whatever his job was that his neighbors thought that he was doing. But his job consisted of killing and hurting people. (laughs) That was pretty much all in a day's work for him. And he'd come home to the family. He'd have dinner. He'd spend the evening with the wife and kids. And he'd get up the next day and back to the grind. He was the yeah. average working husband and dad.
2: The nine to five, you know, mafia hitman man and oh, sh- career criminal.
0: <laughs> it's very scary when you think about it. It, was it is. Wife and kids and family over here and business over there. Yep. And the two worlds would never collide. The next section of his life involved joining forces with Lucky Luciano. So between Bugsy and Lansky, business was going really well. And once they hooked up with Lucky Luciano, he too was an up and coming gangster in his own right in the Italian mob. And he had worked his way up and he made a name for himself with his drug dealings and his sex worker business. But for Luciano, There was something standing in the way of him making it to the next level. And it was the older generation of the mafia. It wasn't necessarily a power thing. It was just that they didn't agree on how the mob should handle its business.
2: The older style mobsters were all about keeping it in, you know, the Italians. They were... They were about keeping it within the Italian families. I mean, Luciano wasn't even born in America. He was, I believe, born in Sicily. They didn't want to branch out and and do any types of business with any of the Jewish or Irish mobsters, or criminals for that matter. And Luciano, uh, what he learned with Arnold Rothstein was that if we can all work together we're all going to make that much more money but the older style mobsters were they were just not having it that was that was not how they did it and luciano was was a visionary he just saw the bigger picture that's where a lot of the a lot of the disagreements came in
0: that's where i was kind of confused because i knew in order to be a part of the mob you had to be italian
2: Mm-hmm. Hundred, yeah, it's a hundred percent. You have to be able to trace it back if you right. want to be a made made member of the Everyone mob. Everyone yeah.
0: else is just an associate.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: So when I knew or heard about this Jewish and Irish stuff, I was a little bit confused, but I understood that they decided the money talks, and Bugsy, he was very valuable to them. Like I said, it wasn't really a power thing. It was just how they wanted to handle their business. These Mm -hmm. old-time mafia guys, they didn't really take well to the younger guys like Lansky and Siegel. And they found themselves running into obstacles when it came to taking their dealings to the next level. So Luciano quickly came to the determination that... These old time guys had to go. And during the nineteen thirties, the older generation gangsters they were embroiled in their own battle for control over in New York. And their two top guys, Salvatore Maranzano and Joe the Boss Mazzaria, they were fiercely fighting a deadly street war for control. But Being so caught up in the back and forth between the two of them, they didn't notice that Luciano had their sights set on both of them. In April of 1931, Luciano had lured Masseria to to an Italian eatery on Coney Island. And while they dined, he excused himself from the table. And when he did, four of his men approached him and shot him four times in the head.
2: Yep, and oh. one of those one of those guys was none other than Bugsy Siegel. Oh
0: my God, I didn't know that.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, reportedly that's uh that's how the story goes. And it's Luciano was a really fascinating guy because he played both bosses. Because how Lucky Luciano got that droopy eye is because he was working for Maranzano, but he was also kind of doing some stuff for Masseria as well and both of them were dead set in the old ways and Luciano pretty much knew that if anything good was going to come of this he pretty much was going to have to take these two guys and he, he he had arranged with a bunch of higher ups you know and basically set all this up but it was really it was really odd because he uh Maranzano had beaten and stabbed lucky luciano and left him for dead uh supposedly under a bridge and he was crawling like they left him for dead and he was you know crawling and trying to trying to get somewhere for his life and the cops go to pick him up and they're like we need to take you to the hospital man and lucky luciano would not get in their car because they were the cops, and he's been stabbed and beaten so bad that it left him with that droopy eye and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, a couple good scars on his face. But what he did was, Maranzano's guys are the ones who took out that beating on him. Well, what he did was, after he had Masseria assassinated, he goes and back and works for Maranzano. Uh, and this is the guy who who beat him and stabbed him and left him for dead. Well, when he goes back to work for Maranzano, the only reason he did it is so that he could get in closer to kill him too. So, so wow. he was he, he had put exactly like a lot of thought re- into it. <laughs>
0: that's exactly the reason why I needed you on this episode <laughs> because I have no idea that that stuff happened because When that happened, Maranzano had gained control of the New York mob, but I looked at my notes, and it wasn't going to be for long because Luciano had him on his hit list. Yeah. And he had this office tucked away behind Grand Central Station in New York, and he kept the staff of bodyguards around his office so that he wasn't going to be easy to take out. And Luciano knew that it wasn't going to be easy for his men to get close to Maranzano to take him out. So he theorized that if he decided to try to get around this, the only way was to recruit some Jewish hitmen as opposed to Italian ones. And he thought it would be easier for them to get close to him. And it's believed that Bugsy was one of the men that Luciano had recruited to do this job. So on September 10th of 1931, dressed as a New York police officer, Siegel, along with two or three other men, entered into Maranzano's office behind Grand Central Station and killed him. And with that, Luciano had gotten rid of the last of the old-timers left, and he took control of the New York mob. And he was able to operate it as if it were a modern-day, well, at least for that era, a modern-day corporation.
2: A lot of people don't give him very much credit for being as smart as he was. <laughs> he, if he would have lived today, he would be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, no question. He just had that vision. He knew how to make money, and don't get me wrong, he was ruthless. Because, I mean, Lucky Luciano was a dangerous guy. But yeah, when he he pretty much became the boss of all bosses. And what Luke, Lucky Luciano did is, there were a few different families uh, who were. Separate crime families who had, uh, you know, separate sections of New York that they were involved in their crime in, and you know, it was a war. Like they were fighting for turf, they were fighting for money, and a lot of a lot of it uh, was the numbers rackets. Now, a lot of times when you watch a mob documentary or something of that sort, you always hear everything about the numbers rackets, and here's why the numbers were so important to control, because the number, the number racket was, it was like a modern day lottery. What a mobster would do is he'd send, you know, a kid out or a le- lower level gangster. It was usually a kid. Uh, they'd send him out and they'd go around town and they'd have each week they would, he, they would go around to different people and say, okay, what's your number this week? And they would choose a number, you know, whether it be, you know, like a, any number between one and a thousand. And each time you played a number, you gave the kid a dollar. Well, each week somebody would draw a number, and then whoever had that number and won would get, you know, a hundred dollars or whatever. So back then, if you are running a numbers racket and you have a thousand people that give you one dollar, and one of these people is going to win a hundred dollars, you're making an extremely huge profit, but yet all these people who only put in a dollar are winning a hundred bucks. So they're more than happy to play that dollar every single week. And that's why, you know, it's considered like the, the modern day uh, a lottery because that's exactly what it was. So control of the numbers rackets was a lot of money. And when these families were separated, they were going to war over turf for things like the numbers rackets or prostitution or anything of that nature. And, uh, you know, even bootlegging still, you know, gambling dens, whatever the case might have been. But what Lucky Luciano did was he formed what is called as the Commission. And basically it was bringing all of these families together. All of the bosses were the Commission. And I'm not gonna deny the fact that he did put himself up at the top. He was the, considered the boss of all bosses. Pretty much nothing illegal happened in New York without Lucky, Luciani, Lucky Luciano knowing about it. And why the commission was so effective was because there were rules put in place in order to, you know, kill a made guy. You know, you couldn't do it without. Uh, you know, permission from the from the commission. And same thing with bosses. Like one of the first things he did was, you can't kill a mafia boss unless it's approved by all the members of the commission. And that gave him the protection because he knew how he was coming up and he, uh, you know, he assassinated two bosses himself in order to get into power. I don't want to say it was a good thing, but for a criminal it was a very good thing because he saw the bigger picture he's like we can all make so much more money if we just work together and that's that's kind of how the uh the commission came about and the commission still you know if the commission still exists it's it it never went away the mafia is still there and these rules that were put in place by Lucky Luciano are still are still observed and it's it's really interesting when you when you get into it cuz most of the times, in most cases, uh especially with the mafia, you know there's there's honor among thieves, if you've ever heard that expression and uh that that was really how it was with the commission. like you needed permission to do a lot of a lot of mafia hits because before before he formed all this and brought this together, I mean these people were killing just massive amounts of mobsters in broad daylight. They didn't care. They just drive by and just hang machine guns out the window and just shoot people up. But when Luciano got into power, he realized, he's like, hey, this is bad for business. This is not helping us. This is bringing too much attention. So every murder that happened had to be approved and that really took down the murder rate quite a bit it was done in more quiet places not broad daylight in front of a bunch of witnesses and stuff like that so he was actually really really smart when it came to you know trying to stay out of the limelight he he didn't want that kind of attention on any members of the mob and that would you know include himself and the other bosses and even the lower level guys I don't know it's really really fascinating when you get into it but there were just so many rules like they made the rule you know you cannot kill civilians because they are not involved in you know what the the criminal organizations you could not um you could not murder police officers or any members of the press because that would bring a lot of bad attention and they didn't want that they just wanted to operate in the dark and just and just do their thing and make Literally, even for the 1930s, just millions upon millions of dollars. And Luciano was really, really smart about how he did all that, I guess.
0: (laughs) The commission was what he envisioned when he did all of this. He wanted every Mog family to have a representative. And they were going to be the ones that oversaw all of the mob activities across the country, as well as working out the conflicts between the families. And so this commission was comprised of seven bosses, and it was one from each family. There were the New York families represented by Luciano, Tommy Gagliano, Joseph Bonanno, and Joe Profassi. And the Chicago, the Chicago outfit was re- represented by Al Capone, and the Buffalo, New York outfit was represented by Stefano Magadino. Luciano was a chairman, and they agreed to have their meetings every five years. Or if it came to an occasion, they had to get together to discuss family problems. So this commission that we've talked about, they were given certain powers They had to approve new bosses before they could officially take over. The five New York families decided that all new proposed members uh, must be approved by all the other families. And only then, once they were approved by others, could they become a made man. And the commission decided to allow Jewish mobsters in, and this included Lansky and Siegel. Um, And if anyone challenged the authority of the commission, chances were they would have that individual murdered. And they would use Murder Incorporated to dispose of anyone who questioned any of them or their decisions. And an example of this is in nineteen thirty five when Jewish American gangster Dutch Schultz wanted to have special prosecutor, Thomas E. Dewey, assassinated for prosecuting him twice for tax evasion. And it effectively crippled his mob activity and businesses. And um He was actually ordered by the commission to not go through with this plan. And Luciano knew a killing like this would bring about a huge investigation into their organization, and he did not want that. And it had been a longstanding rule within the mafia that police officers, federal agents, and prosecutors were not to be harmed whatsoever. So Schultz, remaining defiant, told the commission that in the next three days, he was either going to kill Dewey or his assistant, David Ash, But the commission weren't having this type of insubordination, and they made arrangements for Schultz to be killed first, which took place on October twenty
2: fourth, 1935. Old Dutch Schultz, he was a pretty intriguing mobster. He was one of the originals uh, of the commission, actually, and he, he had beat a big... He had a big trial that he actually beat, which was, it's really interesting all in itself, because he opted, uh, they had the trial outside of New York City and New Jersey and stuff like that, and he basically went up there and schmoozed the the locals up there, and, you know, he was the nicest guy they had ever met, so he ended up beating the rap, but yeah, he uh, after Thomas Dewey went after him, wanted to kill, and he was... Whether the commission approved it or not, which they were never going to because they had, like you had stated, they had very specific rules on a lot of things that people don't realize. But specifically law enforcement and people of the press, they were off limits, those and civilians. And uh, Dutch Schultz was pretty much a loose cannon. He was probably going to get killed either way at some point, but... But, yeah, he he had to be taken out for basically the protection of the families and and of the mob as an organization, and there was no way around it. Uh, Luciano, I believe, did order the hit. I mean, he was sitting in one of his favorite restaurants, got up to go to the bathroom, and, you know, (laughs) got shot in the bathroom and wandered back out to his table and and died on the table.
0: And that happened in Newark, New Jersey.
2: Yeah, nobody was really that upset about it i mean even even dutch schultz's own guys there was there was a power struggle going on with one of his top guys and dutch schultz was notoriously cheap he paid his guys on a salary you know even though he was raking in all this money and you know there's still a lot of stories that uh dutch schultz has some buried treasure Supposedly, oh, around around the New Jersey area, yeah. Uh, i
0: never heard and, of um, a mafia member being cheap.
2: <laughs> he was very cheap. He was very. I think his his birth name, I believe, was Arthur F- Flegenheimer. Um, <laughs> and that wasn't that wasn't the most um, awesome name. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the most hardcore name you could have. So uh, there was an older. Uh, gangster from even before these guys that was named dutch schultz and he just kind of adopted that name and and brought on a brand new reputation with it but yeah he was uh he was notoriously cheap and just he was for lack of a better term you know he's kind of uh kind of a butthead you know he nobody nobody liked him not even his own guys and but yeah when he I don't want to say the commission was looking for an excuse because he was just bringing too much attention anyway, but with the whole Thomas Dewey thing, that's it was bound to happen. So.
0: Well, by 1935, the mob was on the radar of the governor of New York, who was Herbert Lehman. And that very same prosecutor that Schultz wanted oft had been assigned and the task of combating organized crime and, He quickly realized that the most powerful mobster at the time was Luciano, and Dewey also realized that Luciano's most lucrative businesses was his network in the sex trade. So on February 2nd, 1936, there was a massive raid launched and organized by Dewey, and it came down on about 200 brothels in Brooklyn and in Manhattan. Over 100 people were taken into custody, but they weren't going to be booked and released. It wasn't going to be a thing that was that simple. They were being held and one by one made to go before the judge. And the bail was set for all of them at $10,000. And that was a lot of money now and even then 80 or so or so years ago. So within a month's time, several of those being held began talking and implicating Luciano in exchange for their freedom and three of the sex workers who were taken into custody actually pointed their finger at Luciano as the ringleader. Although he did have middlemen working for him and an associate in charge, Luciano was the one collecting all of the money. So late in March of 1936, Luciano got word that there was a warrant for his arrest. So to avoid that, he absconded to the city of Hot Springs, Arkansas, which was a gambling city. And he wasn't so lucky when he got there because he happened there happened to be a detective in Hot Springs, of all places, investigating an unrelated case. And the detective saw Luciano. And um, a few days later, on April 3rd, Luciano was picked up in Hot Springs and with that warrant from New York. And the next day, he was indicted on 60 counts of what was called compulsory prostitution but today we call it sex trafficking and Luciano his attorney fought the extradition and a bribe was even offered to the Arkansas Attorney General to help him from being sent back to New York but not only did the Attorney General turn down the bribe he reported it and he had that charge added to everything he was eventually handed over to three NYPD officers who came down to escort him back to New York via train He was kept under really heavy guard to prevent any type of attempt by any of his associates from getting him out of police custody, and they made it safely back to New York on April 18, 1936. Luciano was sent to jail and held without bail.
2: Thomas Dewey, I guess, this was like a really big embarrassment for a guy of Lucky Luciano's stature with all the crimes that he had supposedly been involved with he was smart enough not very many things could ever be traced back to him right but being you know charged with this and ultimately found guilty was was kind of like a slap in the face for him he was he was really embarrassed by it and there <laughs> yeah, he, he was it was a pretty big embarrassment but he did his time, you know, he ended up getting, I believe it was, what, 30 to 50 years in prison? Yeah. And he... Uh...
0: And you all listening, you know that I'm the one that has all these notes, like notes and notes and notes, and Justin is talking off the top of his head. <laughs> that just goes to show, like, how brilliant this guy's is.
2: <laughs> no, I just, I just get into this stuff. I always have. It's just really fascinating.
0: And Luciano
2: it? was, I don't know how I retain it either. It's <laughs> a bunch of useless knowledge, pretty much, but...
0: Oh, it's very it,
2: uh, <laughs> it's very interesting. It is, and when he did get convicted, I mean, like me and you had had talked about earlier, he had it pretty good in prison. He had one of his top guys that got convicted with him, and he was in the same prison. So Luciano had all his meals prepared for him. He could have whatever visitors he wanted. He, you know, had his custom embroidered clothes. He he didn't live too bad in there, and he still ran. People yeah, don't did. realize, even though he was in prison, he still ran a billion-dollar criminal organization while he was in there.
0: They had a lot of respect for the guy. A month after he was arrested, um, he went to trial, and like Justin had said, he was convicted. I think they were trying to get some tax charges on him as well. But there had always been some question, though, Because when you talk about middle people and Luciano did try to put layer upon layer upon layer between himself and the actual crime. And there's always been a question as to whether or not there was enough evidence to actually convict him on all of these charges because he was safely distancing himself from the running of the business. And there were people closely connected to the brothels and the sex trafficking That said, Luciano had no direct involvement with it, but he was convicted nonetheless. From what I read, and what I guess you just said, Luciano made the best of his time in prison while he was locked up in New York. He was continuing to run his crime family from prison, relaying direct orders through his acting boss, That though he would, I believe I read that he eventually relinquished control. Do you know if that's a fact or not?
2: Uh, That right there is is touch and go. I mean, if you ask any one of them, he did. But in all reality, he was still the boss of all bosses. And as we're about to get into with World War II and stuff like that, I think that right there kind of solidifies the power that this guy did have, let alone while he was in prison.
0: That's a very good point.
2: But, you know, when it comes to World War II, and I mean— Obviously, we're going to get into that. But, like, they didn't go to anybody else. They went directly to Lucky Luciano.
0: They did. Right. Um, he was first sent to Sing Sing, and then later on that same year, he was sent to another prison, to a Clinton Correctional Facility, which was further away. And he continued there to receive very special treatment in prison, even being able to have, like you said, his meals made for him in the kitchen that was used to feed the corrections officers. And um, he was given a job working in the laundry facility, and he was able to use his influence to obtain the materials to have a church erected in the prison grounds. And this church would become famous for not only being one of the very select few freestanding churches in the entire state of New York's correctional facilities, but also there are two doors used in the construction of the altar that came directly from the Victoria which is the ship that was sailed by Ferdinand Magellan. And um,
2: yeah.
0: that's fascinating.
2: I, know, this and,
0: guy, I mean, what?
2: <laughs> and the best part was, is, is the jobs that he had in prison. Other people were working them for him. <laughs> like He did actually <laughs> after. So like he would be assigned a, a certain job and some, one of his guys would go work it for him. And then he would, he would, make the money or whatever it was he just he just had it that that way
0: um justin had alluded to this a little Mm -hmm. bit earlier he would not stay in prison for the duration of his sentence when world war ii broke out the united states government tapped luciano proposing a deal to him the office of naval intelligence was worried that the germans and the italians were going to send agents into the United States via the New York waterfront and that these facilities were going to potentially be sabotaged. Knowing that the mob had control over the waterfront through Lansky, the Navy connected with Luciano about working out a deal. They moved him to a prison closer to New York city, the great Meadow correctional facility in Mm -hmm. Comstock. And they worked it. They worked out the deal with him, the state of New York, the U.S. Navy and Luciano came to this agreement. His sentence would be commuted in exchange for his cooperation in providing any information about what was going on in the New York docks. They also promised that no dock worker union strikes would go on for the duration of the war. The collaboration between the U.S. Navy and the American Mafia would go on to be known as Operation Underworld. And whether or not any information Luciano provided was useful has long been debated, but he was awarded his commutation and in return for his cooperation, but there was a catch. A condition that Luciano was not to fight. He was going to have to be deported to Italy and he chose to accept this deal, even though he insisted that he was a U.S. citizen. So,
2: Yeah, he was... I don't want to say he was really heartbroken. I mean, he loved the idea of getting out of prison. And like you said, you actually touched on a really good point, is that still today there is a lot of debate that says he never really provided any information to help the war effort. But at the same time, when a guy that they had gone after for years, finally get sentenced to 30 to 50 years. They're not going to transfer him to a minimum security prison that's closer to New York and then eventually release him and, and deport him if he didn't provide some kind of valuable information. And, right. you know, the thing there were, there were a lot of boats getting, getting sank off of the coast of New York, there at one point in time there in the late 30s there were uh Nazi spies that were busted on you know the the waterfront there uh, mm-hmm. the, like the piers or the docks there in New York so i mean the the war was close to home and after they did deal with with uh, Luciano nothing like that happened anymore right. so you know it's kind of right. yeah it's it's kind of easy to believe that he did provide something for the government and because they commuted his sentence and they said, we'll let you out, but you can't, you're can not you not allowed in the U.S. ever again.
0: Right. You know, and so. I, I think that he was heartbroken. That was my understanding. He was sad to leave the United States. And so almost 10 years after his conviction, on February 2nd, 1946, Luciano was escorted by two immigration agents to Ellis Island. Eight days later, he boarded a ship leaving Brooklyn Harbor bound for Italy, and this would be the last time he would ever set foot in the United States. It's been reported that yeah, having to leave the U.S. was deeply hurtful for Luciano, but back in Italy, he was kind of a celebrity when it came to any Americans that he encountered over the ensuing years. U.S. soldiers and tourists, if they spotted him, they often asked for pictures and autographs. Which he happily obliged.
2: Yeah, he was. Uh, like you had said, he was pretty much a celebrity over there. The uh, commission gave him a twenty-five thousand dollar a month allowance, and yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and that was that was nineteen thirties and forties money right there. So he was doing pretty well. He was still kind of, I don't want to say upset, but I mean, this was a guy who was making millions of dollars a month, so. So you know, he was change. that's yeah, that's kind of chump change. So he he did though. He helped a lot of the people in the community. Like he would go to breakfast at the same place every morning and there would be people just standing outside the restaurant waiting for him to get done eating. And he would come out and there'd be, you know, just random people, hey, you know, my husband is, you know, in the hospital, we can't afford bills. He would pay medical people's medical bills, he would uh pay for doctor visits he would hand them thousands of dollars in cash to help them out he was i he was i don't want to say i i hate to say like a pillar of the community but that's kind of what he was like nobody knew him as the murderous thug of a criminal organization you know they saw him as as a celebrity who just tried to help as many people as he could while he was there. But at the same time, because he was only making $25,000 a month, he started getting into the heroin trade a little bit. It's he, uh, he found a way to get it and, and cut it and make it all around Italy and, in the Sicily area. and, he was shipping it back to the U S. So he started making his millions upon millions again, but yeah, he, uh, he was always a gangster. Yeah. He was always, always a hustler. And he, drug trafficking was one of the things that set him apart from a lot of other mobsters. He was kind of okay with it as long as it couldn't be tied back to him. But yeah, he started doing all that while he was over there too. And, and,
0: That's fascinating how, like I was telling you while we were working on this, that it's hard to not romanticize these figures in mafia history, but at the same time, they were essentially like serial killers.
2: (laughs) They totally were serial killers. They were, a lot of them were psychopaths. I mean... They're one of uh, the head of Murder Incorporated, the very top guy whose name was Albert Anastasia. His nickname was Lord High Executioner. Oh like, because <laughs> that's all he enjoyed killing people. And I mean, they, some, some theorize it goes all the way up to the triple digits. And and that's, you know, him personally. That's not even the the, the murders that he ordered. And I hate right. to say, you know, it was a different time. But at the same time, like, that's that's no excuse. Like these dudes literally murdered anybody that got in their way.
0: Sure, and I do know that Bugsy Siegel has been quoted as saying to someone, "Don't worry about it. We only kill each other."
2: Exactly, there, and he's he, you know to to that. <laughs> there is. They have you know. I use the term loosely. You know, honor amongst thieves. And when Luciano set up that commission, the homicide rate in Chicago or in Chicago, in New York, dropped because they were very, very careful on who they wanted to have murdered or who they gave the orders to have murdered. It wasn't just random drive-by shootings on, on the streets in broad daylight anymore. They were very carefully planned out. They were thought out and And they were carefully executed. it wasn't wasn't like it used to be, so
0: All right, so this crackdown on the mob didn't end with Luciano and in nineteen thirty five Bugsy Siegel was on special prosecutor Dewey's radar as well, and he was on sort of a crusade to combat organized crime. Luciano at the time had been his primary target, but he got him. He got him where he wanted him, so it was time to move on Siegel began to feel the law closing in on him now Luciano and Siegel they were by no means low-key about the way they carried themselves they liked money they liked to be flashy they dressed really they dressed sharply in expensive tailored suits they had flamboyant spending so it naturally drew attention to them so the idea is to follow the money Luciano would always maintain his hands were clean, but he explicitly attempted to create layers between himself and the rackets that he was running. But the money was always there. The money landed with him, and that's why he was targeted, or part of the reason. So Siegel began thinking that he needed to change. He needed a change of scenery, and he definitely could feel like the heat was starting to come down. And another thing that kind of cut into his money making racket was prohibition having been repealed as well. So bootlegging wasn't going to be a thing. And that was one of the mob's largest sources of income. They needed to find another way. And to supplement that, there was something coming along. And it was sort of born out of the Great Depression that followed the stock market a crash of 1929. And this was gambling. Okay, we're going to stop here in this first part of The Life and Death of Benjamin Siegel. Please stay tuned for the second part, which will be coming out very soon. So, until then, I'll see you on the flip side.